following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. One of Calvin's most famous statements is that the heart of man is an idol factory. The, by nature, men and women, boys and girls, uh, create idols. Uh, Paul expands on that concept in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. and shows us to what extent people will go to deny the true God. To suppress that which is known both in creation and their own consciences to make gods after their own image. It is the foundational problem of sinful human nature. It is in every person outside of Christ. And the remnant of this sin continues in every one of us who is in Christ. Idolatry. This pernicious, subtle evil that haunts us. Well, this is what Job now addresses here in the text before us, uh, chapter 31, verses 24 to 28. You remember what he's doing. He is now given a final speech <coughs> that exonerates him <coughs> against the accusations and implications of his counselors, who assumed that he was a wicked man. But God has said he was not a wicked man. <coughs> he was a man that was... Uh, Blameless, upright, a God-fearer who turned away from evil. And so what Job is doing in chapter 31 uh, is demonstrating with a continued vow that he, in fact, although a sinner saved by grace, knowing he sins every day, uh, was not a wicked hypocrite as they were accusing him. So we've noted the structure of the chapter. <coughs> and each section begins with this statement of a vow, if I have, if I have. And we've seen this as a vow of, of, of self-malediction, of bringing a curse upon himself if he has violated uh, the resolutions of which he speaks. Now, each instance doesn't carry a particular uh, oath of destruction as the one right before us did as we read there in the broader reading today uh, when he prays that if he's done these things then let his shoulder fall from the socket and his arm be broken off at the elbow. But even when he doesn't state a curse upon himself it's implied in the structure of the chapter with this continued if. Now some modern versions uh, simply make it a resolution. Uh, and have I. But I prefer to keep this as it is in the Hebrew to keep before us uh, the solemnity of what Job is saying to challenge us to be able as we are in Christ Jesus to say the same thing and to be able to speak out of a clear conscience. So in this chapter Job has talked about uh, uh, denying uh, the practice of lust or of uh, wrong business practices of adultery and of mistreating his uh, employees or his the poor who are around him and now he comes to this sin of all sins he deals with idolatry in our text and in this text what we see is that idolatry is a subtle and grievous sin that is to be avoided at all cost 
Idolatry is a subtle and grievous sin to be avoided at all costs. We'll look at the subtlety of idolatry, the nature of idolatry, and then the grievousness or heinousness of idolatry. Well, in verses 24 and 25, the Spirit uh, reveals to us the subtlety of idolatry. If I've put my confidence in gold and call fine gold my trust, if I've gloated because my wealth was great, because my hand had secured so much. Now, as you look at these words, you might ask the question, what does this resolution have to do with idolatry? Isn't he talking about covetousness? He is talking about covetousness. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 5 that such is idolatry. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so the person who is gripped uh, with the sin of, uh, of discontent, of envy, of covetousness, uh, Paul describes as an idolater who has no place uh, in thinking of himself or herself as having eternal salvation. And that's why I speak of the subtlety then of idolatry. Because we often don't put these two things together as uh, Paul does for us. And as I believe that the Spirit is doing in Job's solemn vow that he takes here in verses 24 and 25. So he declares two things in these words. In the first place, he puts no confidence or trust in his possessions. So he says in verse 24, If I put my confidence in gold and call fine gold my trust. Now, gold is the standard of great wealth. Uh, fine gold is the best gold that one could have. And uh, Job uses this figure just to talk about the great wealth that by God's providence and grace he possesses. You remember back in, in uh, chapter 1, his, his wealth's described as uh, 7,000 sheep and 500 yoke of oxen and uh, 500 donkeys and camels. Now, by reading of female donkeys, by the way, not just donkeys, and camels, uh, the Spirit wants you to recognize that Job's wealth wasn't simply that he had a lot of acreage, like some big rancher out in Texas, um, and that he was a farmer and that he raised animals. No, by having camels and female donkeys, he was also a merchant. Uh, he, he was raising uh, livestock to sell. And thus, not only would he have a wealth described in terms of land uh, and his own livestock, he would have coffers full of gold and silver. But perhaps you remember that Eliphaz actually pretty much implies that he was covetous. So he's calling Job to repentance back in uh, chapter 22. Uh, verses 23 uh, to 25. And he actually makes this promise in verse 23. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent. So he's implying now that Job is far off from relationship with God. And then he particularly says, And place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brook. Then the Almighty will be your gold and your choice silver. So you see, he there is basically accusing Job of being a covetous man who, in fact, 
is trusting in his wealth and is exulting in his powerful position. And as they've said on other occasions, uh, is running roughshod over the poor. Now Job's already manifested. He doesn't run roughshod over the poor. He's shown that he understands that he is a steward. And this wealth is not of his doing. This wealth has been provided for him by God. And thus he recognizes the need to use it for God and not to make it an object of trust. Because if he made his wealth the object in which he rested for security, he then has made it an idol. You see that. Now the second thing he says is that he, his wealth has not made him a proud man, which is another violation then of, of the 10th commandment. He says in verse 25, if I've gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much. So as he considered what God had given to him, he recognized that it all was a gift of God and there was no place for boasting in Job with respect to the great wealth that he had. It was again a gift of God. A very dangerous gift of God. Now, the Bible's full of warnings that the man, the woman that God blesses with great material blessings uh, suffers great temptations. And when God gives wealth uh, freely, graciously, he then gives the grace uh, to use it properly and to not to trust in it, not to become proud in what one has. But that, in fact, is the danger. Moses warned about this danger in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied, have built good houses and lived in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then... Your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand have made me wealth. That was the Moses, warning that Moses would give later. It's a warning that's based exactly on what Job is teaching us by the Holy Spirit in this text. There was a temptation to look down on others. There's a temptation to gloat and uh, take pride in his wealth. And with that, the, the power and prestige, the chief seat in the gate, all that came with it. And he says, by God's grace, he did not look down on others uh, with contempt or with envy. The psalmist warns in Psalm 62, do not trust in oppression. See, this again relates to this wealth. Do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. So we're mindful then of the rich young ruler. His, uh, his contempt, his pride, his gloating in his position. He was a ruler, but he was a rich ruler. And when the Spirit of Christ searched his heart... Sell all your possessions and give away all you have and come and follow me. He was greatly saddened. You see, that was his idolatry. That is the subtlety of uh, covetousness. That his heart was gripped in this bondage to his wealth. And though he professed to want eternal life, what's he really saying? His current possessions were more important to him than eternal life. Can that be said of you? I hope not. 
that your prestige, your power, your position really is something that uh, you would not do away with if your Savior called you uh, in some way to put aside everything else uh, to cling only to him? Or in your heart, are you clinging only to him? You know, none of you here today, as far as I know, is wealthy. So what does this really say to us? Well, there's three things in the first place. I've just started on this. Don't trust your possessions, even though they are meager, for anything. We do that, don't we? Uh, perhaps some of you are still in this situation, and many of us can remember what it was like when we lived from paycheck to paycheck, and we would have a plumbing problem or something like that, and we had to pray that God would provide. But what happens when we begin to have some prosperity? And there's the plumbing problem. Is our first thought, oh, I must seek God to provide for me? Or is our first thought, okay, I can take care of that. I've got some money in the bank. You see, we're taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray daily for our competent portion. And it doesn't matter then if we have a pantry full, a savings account, or whatever else. Everything that comes to us should be a resp our response to any trial is... Provide for me, Lord. Our daily thought should be in the morning. Lord, give me today the competent portion that you have for me. Now, God will use your work to do that. And God will use your savings account to do that. And God will use your full pantry to do that. But God is using it. And you're conscious then that God is using these things to provide for you. So if you are trusting in anything but God to provide for you daily, that is covetousness and idolatry. Next, uh, we must then learn to be content in our present circumstances, whatever they might be, whether it's little or much. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in uh, Philippians, I've learned to be content in whatsoever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering. We don't think about covetousness when we have a lot, do we? But it's every, much, every bit much a problem. Then you want more. Never enough. And uh, what Paul is saying is that we have to learn to be content in prosperity. And we must be content in poverty. We must seek by God's grace to live by that tenth commandment. And not then become idolaters because of discontent. And envy. And then a third thing that we must do uh, as Christians is to humble ourselves, regardless of your gifts, your possessions, your place in the society or in the church, and to recognize that whatever you have has come from God, not of your own ingenuity, gifts, talents, expertise. And so we remember what the Apostle Paul teaches in um, 1 Corinthians 4. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? And so we see the Holy Spirit then shows us the subtlety of idolatry, that our hearts might be searched, that we might try to live daily. By God's grace, through Christ Jesus, independence on God.
What we, next we have then is the nature of idolatry. Verses 30, 26 and 27. If I've looked at the sun when it shone and the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. Now, I think Job puts the sun and moon here uh, as kind of the epitome of idolatry. Uh, that, that's the only logical idolatry there can be. Yeah. There's no logic to, as, as the prophets will ridicule people for, for taking some leftover wood and, and making a, an idol or having to prop it up and, and to carry it about. But you see, there's something uh, in the sun and the moon. We, we intuitively recognize that the, uh, there's life that comes uh, from the sun. Uh, and there's famine that can come from the sun. And uh, the ancients recognized that there, obviously, were, the moon had effects uh, on um, the tides and other things in culture. So uh, Job puts this here because it's the, it's the one temptation to idolatry that at least has some logic to it. Uh, but he says he uh, eschewed it. He hated it. He wanted nothing to do uh, with any type of idolatry. And so he never looked at the sun and thought of it as anything but a, a glorious creature, but made by God. And, and the moon and all of its splendor. Uh, as we, uh, I think last week had in Psalm 136, that he made the, the great lights. Uh, the great light of the sun to rule the day and the great light of the moon to rule the night. And yes, they're made by God and they serve functions in God's providence. But they're creatures. We're creatures just like us. And so Job is saying here that I do not practice any form of idolatry. He goes on to say that he's not even uh, secretly uh, a halfway idolater. Uh, that uh, my heart has become secretly enticed, my hand through a kiss from my mouth. So I didn't even set up these things uh, alongside my God. You know, I'm, I'm committed to um, God alone. So I didn't blow a kiss of, of an act of worship. An act of affection. I didn't even blow a kiss to these things because I recognize that God alone is to be the object of my worship. So as I said, we, we, what we have here uh, is an, enforced in the first two commandments that we're working on now on Sunday evening. And the first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God. There's no neutrality. And our God, you must then have him personally as your God. To worship and glorify him accordingly. And forbids not denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God. And giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. And then it's enforced for believers in the second commandment. Second commandment requires receiving, observing, keeping pure and entire all such worship. A religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word and forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. And so what the Spirit teaches us through Job is that not only he's not going to have an idol, the central place in his life, but there'll be no idols alongside the worship of the true God. That he has taken God alone to be his God. Again, you might sit here thinking, well, I don't guess there's a lot of idolatry. Well, actually, there's a, a growing pagan idolatry. Uh, so 
uh, December 22nd this year will be the winter solstice. And pagans have had special ceremonies, the winter solstice, uh, throughout centuries. And that now is uh, being amplified, and it's amplified in the West, not just in cultures that we would think are somewhat superstitious. What is that but worshiping um, the heavenly bodies? The, the shortest day of the sun, the longest day of the night in the winter solstice. I'll come a bit closer to home because I know many Christians do this, and that is consult astrologers. And that's why in the newspapers you've got uh, the astrology accounts. And people who say they believe in God and trust in Christ alone would never begin a day without looking at their astrology. Is that not making an idol of the sun, the moon, the stars, those wonderful creatures that God has made as servants to us and not to be God's in our lives. But we can come closer to home as we think about the idols that remain in our own hearts. Hearts of men and women, boys and girls that confess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Usually on Lord's Day mornings and evenings, my wife and I take a nice, comfortable back road home, stay off, we take the interstate in the morning, stay off interstate at night and, and in the morning. So we go by this huge soccer complex on the Lord's Day, full, hundreds of people. And I know if we walked out there and took a survey, majority of those people would say, of course I'm a Christian and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've dubbed it the idol temple. That's what it is. And these people are offering their children up to Moloch, a false god. Or professional football. Probably the number one idol in America. So bad that when a man's team loses, he gets drunk, tears up his house, he commits suicide, he murders his wife. That sounds like a pretty heavy idolatry, doesn't it? Now, he'll miss church for any number of reasons, but he's not going to miss that football game. But of course, it's, it's, it's more subtle. It, it is in our hearts uh, a desire to be our own God, uh, to live our own lives, not to submit to the authority of God through the Holy Scriptures. Or how you approach to do something. Do you do it in your own strength? Or do you do it in dependence upon God? You see the difference. If it's your own strength, then you say, I can do this like a two-year-old. I don't need your help. Now, every, every task, mental, spiritual, whatever, needs to be done with a a conviction, a dependence of asking God by His Spirit to aid us in that task. So we need to plead with Him to root this idolatry out of our lives, to have a, a soul passion for God and none else. And if today I say to you, if God is not your chief delight, then you're either in serious sin or you're unconverted. Now we all wrestle with this, I understand. But if the pattern of your life is that God is not your chief delight, if you don't want to love Him with heart, mind, soul, and strength, then that's a very good indicator that you're unconverted. And you need to repent of idolatry and come and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can deliver us, uh, not just from the punishment of sin, but from its power as well. Which leads us then to look at the heinousness. You know, you say that word heinousness, you have to make a face. Uh, it really 
illustrates what we're talking about. The heinous nature of idolatry is expressed two ways in verse 28. It says, idolatry would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Now I want you to note that this phrase, an idolatry, is an iniquity calling for judgment, is exactly the phrase he uses after he talks about adultery. In verse 11, it would be a lustful crime. It would be an iniquity punishable, but it's the same phrase. Punishable, you see, is italics, as is calling for um, judgment. You see, the Spirit is showing us here that uh, uh, the conscience of all people that natural revelation of God that is in Scripture, that remnant of God's law that is on our heart, condemns not just adultery, but condemns idolatry. Isn't that what Paul shows in, in Romans chapter 1? That people actively are suppressing the knowledge of God. And because it is a universal knowledge of God that's being actively suppressed, the Holy Spirit teaches us it is an iniquity. If practiced publicly, it should be judged. It should be punished. Now, of course, that can create some kind of tensions uh, for us in the culture in which we live. But uh, if, in fact, a God were to bless us, you don't punish people to make them worship God, but you would not allow for idolatrous worship to go on in the community where you live. What people do in private is one thing. But publicly, no. Uh, it's a sin to be punished by the judges. But how do we apply that? to who we are, a pluralistic society today. Well, Joseph Carroll gives three principles that I found so helpful here. Um, that the government, may, how it may punish iniquity in our day. First, all those evil opinions and heresies which tend in their own nature to the disturbance of civil peace and good government of mankind. As I thought about that, I'm thinking of anything that required animal or human sacrifice. That would be something that to this day is against the law. In fact, you can get in greater trouble for torturing an animal than you can for committing abortion. But uh, it's right. Animal sacrifice, human sacrifice should be punishable by judges if that's what your religious or your cult and some of these do call for. Second, he says, all such opinions and erroneous doctrines as are accompanied with any notorious sins of practice. Well, in America, by God's grace, we do not allow polygamy. It's against the law. It is a false religion, either in Islam or Mormonism. That is clearly against uh, natural law and against Scripture. And so, by God's grace, we still have laws against that. Uh, and then the third is, I'll put here under the second also, we used to have Sabbath laws. We called them blue laws. And uh, these laws did not require you to go to church. They did require you not to do commerce on the Lord's Day. Uh, uh, but this day was a special day that uh, belonged to God's people. That was a righteous law, uh, punishable by judges. Then the third he mentions is atheism. All professed atheism and open blasphemy against God ought to be punished by the magistrate. And perhaps some of you can remember that our nation used to have anti-blasphemy laws. There were things you could not put on a billboard or say in public. Because they blasphemed the name of our holy God. Well, so here's an example of not that many years ago in American culture. These were the types of expressions of idolatry that could have been punished by the judges. 
So that's the first thing that shows us its heinous nature. And the second is even more serious. For he says idolatry leads then to a denial of God above. And there is nothing worse than to deny the thrice holy God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the worst evil of evils, the greatest sin of all sins. And so Job, by the Holy Spirit, lays out before us the subtle and heinous nature of idolatry. As he does so, may the Spirit search our own hearts. You need daily to pray, Lord, search me, try me, know my thoughts, know my anxious thoughts within me. Ask the Spirit of Christ to search out your idols and daily enable you to throw them to the ground by His grace. Crush them under your feet. Not live blindly, but open-heartedly wanting God to expose your idolatry. Now God's given us two very practical um, things to do. Two practices to help root out idolatry. The first is Sabbath keeping. You stop and think about it. I've experienced it in my own life. If in fact by God's grace you want to keep the Sabbath day entirely holy and as the confession says to seek to avoid unnecessary uh, thoughts, words, and actions in your recreations and in your employment. Do you see what that does? If you have a day, every time there's a temptation to think about this other thing, this football team, or uh, this bank account, or uh, this position, or, or whatever it might be, and you, you put the dagger in there, no, this is the Lord's day by God's grace, I'm not going to think about that. Do you see what it does? I'm not going to spend my time doing it. These people sacrifice their children to the Moloch of soccer. And all they're doing is creating little idolaters themselves that will think that uh, actually this is more important than God, more important than being in church with his people. And so uh, I want you to look on the Sabbath as a blessing from God to help kill idolatry in your heart. Then you'll love the Sabbath a lot more if you hate idolatry. Now the other practice is tithing. You see... If you're committed to a careful Christian stewardship of your funds, and I think that should begin at a level of tithing, but I leave that to your conscience, but wherever it is, if you practice tithing, suddenly all of your material possessions take a different nature. One time in Houston, a little Joey said to me, he was about four, Daddy, why can't we have, and our neighbors had these... Uh, boats and all these things and I said well if we didn't tithe and send you to Christian school we could have anything we wanted but you see the Lord immediately causes your life to become disciplined you have to decide what is important and you have to become better stewards and managers of the possessions that God has given you and so those two practices if you're serious about rooting out idolatry in your life will certainly enable you by God's grace to do so and then above all, look on the Lord God. Ask the Spirit for a passion for God. Meditate uh, on Him in His splendor and his, his beauty, His glory, His power. All the ways He has revealed Himself to you in Scripture. And then above all, you meditate today on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great that today we come to the Lord's table where the Spirit is teaching us 
uh, what our Savior did, this great mystery of holiness, this glorious idea that the eternal Son of God took to himself a human nature, humbled himself under the law and all the miseries and punishments of sin in this life as well as the life to come, who obeyed the law of God perfectly and then laid down his perfect soul as a sacrifice for the sins of his people and died and suffered the humiliation of burial that he might lead us out of the grave. And now he's seated on high, King of kings and Lord of lords, administering grace to us. And here today as we remember him, his death, his work for us, we come meditating on the beautiful plan of redemption and that God then will cause us to delight in our Savior above everything else. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for um, teaching us more about the dangers of idolatry. Lord, grant that we would hate our own idolatry, hate the idolatry that is around us, and Lord, that we would have a passion uh, for single-minded devotion to you, and you will cause us then to grow in grace and godliness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.